And when I get to heaven, this white light fully envelops me. And I fall down in spirit. I did not have a resurrected body. But I knew where I was. There's total silence. I didn't have a body. We communicated spiritually. I knew who he was. And he knew me, the creator and the creation. And I just kept praising him and thanking him. I said, I'm here. I always wanted to be the least in the kingdom. There's no time there. It's total silence. I was home. If I'd put one word to describe where I was, I was home. You know, near-death experiences are all the rage. The secular media talks about it. They love finding these cases. They talk about them. But it's mostly from self-accounts and, you know, did it really happen? Sometimes, though, it happens with the whole medical team there. Imagine if it happened not once, but multiple times with the whole medical team. So it's all documented. And not only that, what if the person dies for two hours and still comes back? What if the person dies for two hours, comes back and talks about having met God? Well, we've got one of those with us today. His name is Paul Zuccarelli. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. So good to be with you and with you, Beth. Pleasure, John Henry. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Paul, if, if you wouldn't mind, please tell us your story. It's so fascinating what you've already told me, and uh, I'd love for everyone to hear it. I was a, basically a lukewarm Catholic. Um, caught between Vatican I, Vatican II, very poorly catechized, born in 1959, clueless, you know, was told to go to church or you go to hell, the old guilt trip. So... Um, basically, I love the Bible, though. I had an affinity for the Bible. And I remember as a kid, people would ask me, you know, who's the greatest person that ever lived? And I would always say Jesus Christ. And uh, my mother had a miraculous healing um, when I was about 10 or 11, and she had terminal cancer. And she was not Catholic. She's Protestant. Dad was Catholic. And she went to a Catholic uh, prayer service with women praying over her for healing. She came home, she said she felt energy go through her, and she lived, she was 41 at the time. She lived to 83 and didn't die of cancer. And I took that healing for granted until what happened to me. So I'm living my life very successful in the world. Uh, the Lord gave me a good intellect of reason. I was very data-driven. I had, I had to have data to make decisions. So I became a businessman, and uh, we had got married my childhood sweetheart here. Um, I had lost my crucifix, which you'll hear about. She bought me another one. But we ended up um, coming out to Arizona and had two children, two boys, and life was great. I mean, I had it all as far as the world was concerned. Um, you know, houses, cars, country clubs, friends, wealth. Um, and the more I got into the world, the more my spiritual life was, you know, faltering. Although I read the Bible, um, I didn't um, practice my faith um, all in, if you will. So. My mitral valve was leaking in my heart, and it began to leak severely, and I'd have all these symptoms. And I went to the doctor on December 8th of 2016 down in Tucson, where I lived, 
And the doctor said, you know, your valve's leaking in your heart, but you'll die of something else. Don't worry about it. Here's medicine for this symptom, medicine for that symptom. And I got in the car after that appointment, knowing that I was not feeling really well. And I received my first locution. I didn't know what a locution was till I read St. Teresa of Avila's book, The Interior Castle. And I... What is a locution? Just so that everybody knows. Locution is an interior voice where the Lord speaks to you. And to me, it's the Holy Spirit. We're living in the final age. And... This voice just says, wasn't audible. It was just right in, like your mind is blank and someone speaks right into it. And the Lord said to me, get, get to the Mayo Clinic now. It's the valve. It's your valve. And so I call the Mayo Clinic and they said, we have one appointment left before the end of the year. Get up here. And they ran some tests and they said, you're, you're in mitral valve failure. You're, you're in heart failure. Your valve's leaking so bad. Um, you have to go to the surgeon. So I go to the surgeon and he <clears throat> basically says to me that I have to replace it. Your valve shot. He shows me the picture. And I said, it's not what I wanted to hear, doctor, today. Total stranger, John Henry. And I remember my mother, prayer with the blood of the cross. One drop of the blood of the cross can heal the world. And I look at the stranger and this was not Paul. And I said, may, may I have your hands, please? He said, what? I said, I need to pray over your hands. I said, Lord, you brought me to this man. He's a total stranger in my life. Grant him the patience and the precision in his fingers, the gift you gave him of healing to repair my valve. In Christ's name, amen. So I go home and, you know, I'm getting ready for the surgery and Beth sees me really troubled because as I'm reading the word preparing for surgery, the Lord kept telling me, I suffered for you, you'll suffer for me, but I'll be with you. Over and over. And I am not a mental case. Um, this is hard for me because I'm an intellectual and I told Beth, there's something going to happen to me. There's, there's something. He, I may die. Stop it. You're perfectly healthy. They do this all the time at Mayo. I said, no, 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 no. I'm being prepared for something. So as I prepare for the surgery, Beth sees me um, in trouble, struggling. God, who wants to suffer, right? But I finally got it, John. He was born to die. Christ. My only way is through my own death. And if I don't embrace the crucifix as my own autobiography, it's, it's a rejection of Christ. I have to go through this. So Beth buys me this crucifix three days before surgery, seeing me troubled and says, take him with you for comfort, Paul, please. Thank you. I'll share with your, you and your audience where this ends up in Bishop Olmstead's hands. So we end up uh, going in for surgery. I said, Romans 5, 3 through 5, beautiful prayer for me. Rejoice in your sufferings, endurance, perseverance, hope. <laughs> so I go in for surgery and I survive. And the doctor says, hey, I was in there five hours. I repaired your valve. You're good to go. You'll be out in five days. The Lord had a different plan for me. The next day was Saturday, June 3rd, 2017. And at 2.10 p.m., I died. Reminds me of Ephesians 2.10. <laughs> and I, I die. Cardiac arrest. Beth's out having lunch with, the, with our sons and my sister's at the foot of the bed. And she starts praying over me. No weapon formed against Paul shall prevail. He began a good work and Paul shall complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Then she said the fourth cup of Lil prayer. She had no idea what she prayed. Paul shall not die but live. Proclaim the deeds of the Lord. Chastise him severely, but don't turn him over to death. So John Henry, when I die on Saturday, my soul separates from my body. And I look down on the teams working on me. It was total peace recognize the body. And then all of a sudden, this glorious white light comes. Some people say it's a tunnel. This is a brilliant white light. It's brighter than the sun. It would burn your sockets of your eyes. 
and the light just beckons and takes me. What I'm going to share with your audience is metaphysical, and I don't think anyone has the intellect to describe God in heaven, but I'll try. I couldn't tell whether I was moving forward into the light or the light was pulling me. It was like absorption. I'll use that term. And I go straight up. And when I get to heaven, this white light fully envelops me. And I fall down in spirit. I did not have a resurrected body. But I knew where I was. There's total silence. I didn't have a body. We communicated spiritually. I knew who he was. And he knew me, the creator and the creation. And I just kept praising him and thanking him. I said, I'm here. I always wanted to be the least in the kingdom. There's no time there. It's total silence. I was home. If I'd put one word to describe where I was, I was home. Then the Lord showed me my past and my conscience. Everything I did back to when I was a child that harmed him, that he took offense with. I wasn't judged, but he showed me and he said, you have to go back. Next thing I know, my eyes pop open and I look up and the doctors are screaming at me and I describe everything they did to me while they were working on me. And they said it was an anomaly. You died, but we, we got you back. Well, the Lord wasn't done. The tumult had just begun. The next day was Pentecost Sunday, June 4th, 2017 at 8.49 a.m. on Pentecost. I died again. This time the medical teams can't get me back. I have eight cardiac arrests. My lovely wife and our children had to watch this. My whole family had to watch this from 10 feet away. And they're electrocuting me and paddling me. Finally, they get the chaplain ahead of the ICU and they said, we're sorry, what he has is fatal. There's Purkinje nerve damage in his ventricle from the surgery. They're not firing. He's no electrical in his heart. Upon hearing that, I said, Dr. Shervatsen's here. He's the head of the electrophysiology department at Mayo. He hasn't, your, your husband has no electrical. We're done. The ICU teams, the crash teams, there's nothing more we can do. If he wants to do something, enter the Holy Spirit, John Henry. The Lord moves our 34-year-old son, Michael, at the time, our oldest son, to go in my room, take the last thing he has left of dad, cross. It's hanging on the bedpost, male. The Lord tells him, thank God he listened to the Lord. The Lord said, take the cross, get to St. Paul's Church now, leave. Beth's trying not to have him go anywhere because he's in trauma. Dad's dead. He takes the cross and he walks out the hospital. And he drives to St. Paul's Church. He gets there. He didn't know where it was. He walks in. He thinks it's a priest. It's Bishop Olmsted. There's only four and a half million people in Phoenix. The Lord connects two people on Pentecost Sunday. You can't make this up. Walks in, waits for Mass to be over. Bishop Olmsted had chrism on his hands. And Michael runs up to him, falls at his feet, and lifts up the cross and says, please, save my father's life. He's a good man. Please help him. Pray for him. Bishop Olmsted later told Beth and I, I have never seen an act of faith like that. I clutched your crucifix, Paul, and I felt suffering. And I prayed as hard as I could. And I went back to my private chapel and I prayed all afternoon into the evening into my vespers for an anointing of the Spirit to heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Michael said this complete peace came over him, that whether dad was dead or whether dad was going to live, he was at peace. 
know, to me, it reminded me when I heard the story of the Roman centurion to say the word healing. And it's one of the few miracles, as you know, that Jesus wasn't present with the man. As if, you know, and what did he say to his apostles? I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. So um, we know that John writes um, eloquently that God is light. You know, I'm the light of the world. Or 1 John 1, 5, John writes, what he declared to us, we proclaim to you, God is light. While they're praying, the Lord sent a man that day, the electrophysiologist at Mayo. He came in and he said, look, I don't, there's no treatment for your husband. He sewed a generator in the side of my neck while the people are praying. And he runs a wire down my juggler into my atrium to try to beat my heart with an external generator. Goes up underneath my clavicle and my brainstem and the ganglion nerve, your autonomous bodily function nerve. When you sleep, you breathe and your heart beats. He anesthetizes it and kills me. But he showed me my chart and he said, I want you to read this. Right here, I cannot proceed with interrogating the wire in your atrium to beat your heart because you don't have a heartbeat. I can't test the wire before I kill the nerve at your brain. Right here, you're going to the morgue. The next sentence in my chart, John Henry, praise be Jesus Christ, says, patient's heart spontaneously returns to sinus rhythm. And we're looking around. Your heart came back by itself. We tested the wire. I killed you. It is exactly when Bishop Homestead and our son Michael were praying because everything's timed at Mayo on the clock. Michael had his death on. So here we are. A miracle occurred on Pentecost. And um, the president of the American College of Neurosurgeons read my book and said, I need to meet this electrophysiology cardiologist because what he did to you is a neurosurgeon's procedure. And only the top 1% of neurosurgeons in the world would ever attempt a left stellar ganglion nerve block of the brainstem which is what he did to you. Who trained him? So I asked Dr. Shervatsen, the EP, and he said, tell him I'm not a neurosurgeon. No one trained me. I read about it. As I told you, when I came in that day, Paul, there was no treatment for you. What I did to you is not treatment. I just rested your heart. That's all. Here I am. Praise be. Two days later, I'm up walking around, John Henry. And they told my wife, look at in two days, we wean him out of the cone. We <laughs> shut the wire off. If his heart stops again, we leave the man. He's dead. But if he lives, be prepared for a man who's going to be brain damaged because I was dead for approximately two hours on Sunday in Pentecost. So two days later, I'm up walking around praying over people, a new creation. I mean, a complete, and literally, I quit the world. I just quit everything. I've seen and tasted. But you're more blessed than I am. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 20, blessed are you who haven't seen and believe. You know, Archbishop Cordelione was kind enough to visit us in uh, we showed him the medical records, and he, I didn't realize his training as a theologian. And he asked me all these questions, and he said, everything you said is in conformity with the Catholic Church's teaching. Bishop Olmsted is one of very few bishops. He's a, he wouldn't like to hear this, but I, he's a holy man. Uh, I had the privilege of, of meeting him personally once. Just a very holy man who has struggled, as, as have so many of faithful uh, bishops to you know do the right thing and what a what a guy what a beautiful beautiful story he was a stranger we, we've never met him we've become very very good friends and people have told me to go get the medical records at mayo and i said well why it was a you know something happened and he said he said you know uh paul bishop Olmsted, you're not the only one priests have told me where bishop Olmsted's intervened and there's been incredible healings. I agree with you. The man's a saint. 
Just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. Well, I want to ask you, Beth, what what your role was in all this as, as you were going through this and watching this. Um, how did it affect you and, and what happened with you? Prior to the surgery, I would witness my husband sitting in his chair reading his Bible, which he always did. But he's crying. He's suffering. And I had no clue what was going on. I thought it was anxiety over the upcoming open heart surgery. But he never shared with me these locutions he was having. So I'm just watching my husband cry and being very anxious about an upcoming surgery. And so that's when I went out and I bought that crucifix for him. I said, you know, he used to wear one when we were dating, when we were in high school. And um, I thought, well, you know, maybe it'll give him peace. Maybe it'll give him some kind of comfort. So I just, I thought it was just, okay, just go buy him a crucifix. Well, I think that was the Holy Spirit telling me to go do that. And so I did that. Well, that weekend, when he had his cardiac arrest, I was not there on the Saturday. I was out to lunch with our younger son, David, and his sister was there because we were taking time turns being with him. But my sister-in-law had texted me that said that Paul coded. So my son dropped me off at the front door. By the time I got up to ICU, they had already cardioverted him and he was, he was back. So I did not have to witness anything. And I told my sons, I said, you know, I'm not going to, I was staying in a hotel that's right there in front of the Mayo Clinic. And I said, I'm not going to go back to the hotel. I'm going to spend the night in ICU with Paul. I'm not leaving. And I told the whole family that. So they brought in one of those recliners and I spent the night with Paul in ICU. And I asked my son, David, to stay in the hotel room so that he could come back in the morning and be with me when the doctors did their rounds so that I had that extra set of ears when the doctors told me what happened yesterday, you know, the day before. So David agreed. And so the next morning on Pentecost Sunday, it was myself and David and his sister. And we were at the foot of the bed. We're talking to him. We're having just normal conversations. When all of a sudden his eyes rolled back in his head and he had a cardiac arrest. The alarms go off, the crash teams come in, and I see my sister-in-law, and she had already witnessed this the day before, so I told her that, you know, just go out in the waiting room, just go pray, Donna, we'll stay here with Paul. So David and I stepped out, we watched, and my son David was my rock. As I'm watching my husband get cardioverted many times, going in and out of cardiac arrests, my son David sat there and watched all the telemetry. And he kept saying, Mom, Mom, they've got him back. They got him back. They got him back there. They got him back. Well, sometime between the second and third cardiac arrest, I said to David, please make sure, text your brother, make sure he gets here. Because I didn't think my older son, Michael, was ever going to see dad alive again. So he was actually on his way because he actually lived in the Phoenix area. And within minutes, he came through the IC room doors. And I told him, go to the head of the bed. Tell dad you're here. So he did. 
he walked up to the head of the bed and he said, dad, I'm here, I love you. And right there in front of Michael, Paul had a cardiac arrest. There's my 34 year old son. He's in complete trauma. He's shaking, he couldn't even stand up. So I bring him out of the room and the three of us are huddled together and we continued to watch this for another 40 minutes. And I could tell by the looks on the doctor's faces that the news that they were gonna tell me was not good. I knew things were not going well. So they came out and Dr. Shervatsen said that they were going, he was gonna take him downstairs to the cath lab and he was gonna try something. Of course, all the medical terms I didn't understand. I signed forms and they took Paul away. That's when Michael went back in the room and he grabbed that crucifix. I saw him go back in the room, but I never knew why he did what he got. I thought he went in for his water bottle or his backpack, but he got that crucifix and he never told me. So we're in the elevator on the way down to the lobby. And he looks at me and he says, mom, I need to find a church. And I said, where do you think you're going? I said, you're in no condition to drive. I'm in no condition to drive. I said, we'll go downstairs. We'll play in the, we'll play in the chapel. He says, no, mom. And I will never forget the look in his eyes. He looked at me and he said, mom, I need to find a church. I knew there was no stopping him. I walked my son to the front doors of the Mayo Clinic and I watched him walk across the parking lot. And I looked up to God and I said, God, he's in your hands. I can't protect him anymore. So he left. 20 minutes later, I actually called his wife and asked where he was. And she said that he was sitting in a church somewhere. And I said, praise God, he got to where he needed to go. I had no clue where he went and he never shared it with me. He comes back and everything's fine. Paul has the procedure done. He's back in ICU. And I spent the night in, the night in ICU with him on Sunday night again. Well, then on Monday, the doctors told me that you know, what they did and explained everything. And he was reintubated, so he couldn't talk. But at this point, they told me they didn't know what kind of neurological damage he was going to have because of his multiple cardiac arrests. So we just, the family was around him and we were waiting. And eventually they started weaning him off the anesthetic and all of the drugs he was on. And he uh, came out. And so he seemed fine. He was talking to us, answering the staff's questions, and he seemed fine. So I asked my son, David, I said, David, I haven't been back to the emergency. I haven't been back to the hospital or uh, back to the hotel room in two and a half days. I'm going to go and I'm going to just take a quick shower. And he said, no problem, mom, go and rest. You haven't been sleeping in two days. So I went over to the hotel room and I walked in that room and it's the first time I was alone since all this happened. And all you women out there, all you moms out there, you know you cry differently when you're alone. I walked in that room and I just broke down. And I just cried out to God. I said, God, what is happening to my family? What is going to happen to my family? And I continued to cry and I continued to pray. Before long, I went into the bedroom and I just threw myself on the bed just out of pure exhaustion. The last thing I remember was this instantaneous thought of my son, David. And there was an image of a black cell phone. And on the cell phone was this message and it said, come back. The next thing that happened to me was I felt this wind 
go through me, right through my core, and I was out. I woke up about 40 minutes later, and being a Catholic schoolgirl for 12 years, those nuns taught me about the Holy Spirit. And I woke up and I'm thinking, was that the Holy Spirit? I felt this wind. Was that the Holy Spirit? I woke up in complete peace. I felt like I had rested for three days and I knew everything was going to be okay. I never told anybody. I think I told Paul like a day or two later and I had no clue what had happened to me. So when we decided to move up to Phoenix and we met some good and holy priests, the Franciscan Friars of the Holy Spirit, they helped me discern it. And one of the priests said to me, after I told him my story, he said, yes, Beth, that was the Holy Spirit. He came to give you peace. And I said, I believe that. I truly do believe that. I said, but please help me make sure that I've discerned what was with the phone and what was with our son, David. I want to make sure I've discerned that properly. And he says to me, Beth, the Lord knows your prayers. Now, if there was any a time prior to Paul's surgery that I was praying and I was crying, it was for my son, David. He had fallen away from the church. He was not practicing his faith anymore. And I had cried fervently for him to come back. So I know the Lord was hearing my prayers and he heard them because our son David is in the church. He's back in the church. Your son, Michael, a beautiful story with, with Bishop Olmsted there. How's he doing right now? He's doing very Wonderful. well. He's on fire for the Lord. And he had, he's all in on the Latin Mass. Doing Latin Mass. That's where he's, that's what he's all going back to tradition. That's where he finds a depth in his faith. Life is very different for you now. You said you've 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 left the the world of finance and you were CEO of company. You did walk away from all that. Yeah, people think I'm certifiably nuts. I had so many business acquaintances and friends, and you know, winning entrepreneurial fellow awards all over. Now people, I don't have very many friends left out in the world. They said, oh, you heard about Paul, he's become a Jesus freak. Well, that's a badge of honor. Um, you know, what I realized is they, uh, they didn't love me or like me. They liked my position of power, what I could do for them. That was a very, very poignant learning lesson for me. Now that I can't do anything for them. But some big Catholic evangelists have said, you know what I really love about your story and your book? Bishop Olmsted, by the way, wrote the foreword to the book said, every Christian can learn there's a living Jesus Christ in you and amongst us. So what's interesting is uh, uh, with me is the walking away from the world, they said, you know, Paul, you never talk about what you did, said it's irrelevant. I had an I love me room with all my awards. It is meaningless. The only thing that matters is the salvation of my soul. I didn't want to come back, John Henry. I believe what happened to me was necessary for my own salvation, my family, and anyone else. Because what's on my heart is the last two lines of the book of James. If anyone, that's you and me and everyone else, can bring one person back to Christ, we'll not only cover over a multitude of our own sins, we'll save our own souls. So what I try to do now is uh, do what I can. But again, people say, I look at what you did. You could have done this the rest of your life and made a ton of money with very little effort. Why don't you ever, it's irrelevant. I made a covenant with God that I wanted to be a beacon of light to many. He answered my prayers. I have to be faithful to my covenant. This world is passing away. And being so much in it, 
I became independent, which is a form of self-sufficiency, which is a form of pride. Um, and God gave me two things, my existence and my free will. My own free will, John Henry, was getting in the way of a closer personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if a major client wanted to go golfing at my fancy country club on Sunday because he wasn't Catholic, I would do that. Again, I was the lukewarm Catholic. So what did Jesus say in Revelation 3? So you say you're rich and affluent and have no need of anyone, yet you are poor, wretched, pitiable, and blind. Repent and return. Paul, how can people uh, get your book? What's it called? And uh, where is it best to get it? It's called Faith Understood, An Ordinary Man's Journey to the Presence of God. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere. It's on our website. Our website's www.faithunderstood.org. It's a nonprofit. I couldn't take a dime. We donate all the proceeds of the book and any speaking fees to the evangelization of Christ in the church. So www.faithunderstood.org. You can watch The Witness. And if you'd like, anyone who's listening to your show, John Henry, we go everywhere. We're leaving on a couple of days to Pittsburgh and Steubenville and, and um, to give our witness all week. We just go where the Holy Spirit opens doors. We give our witness. We help people. Because what's hope? To me, you can't have faith unless you, you have to have faith in order to have hope in a dark world. Hope is an acronym, hearing other people's experiences. Absolutely. As the world is fairly dark right now, um, not only in the, the secular world, also even in the church with so much consternation. Um, what, what's your message to the faithful right now? Your, your conversion story is so stark, so powerful, uh, particularly your encounter with the risen Lord, with, with God himself. How do you see with the eyes that you've been sort of renewed with uh, what we're currently going through and how people should, uh, should survive it? Whatever's happening in the church and in the secular world, God is allowing it for his glory. Once, you, once we accept that as individuals, that we're just creatures, okay, God's allowing it. Everything's working for his glory. And I know some people on the far extreme will go right to the, the Kateakon and, you know, and Thessalonians and get deep in it. Other people are simply trying to figure out how to survive in this church right now. So we have these two extremes going on. And I would really encourage your audience to stay focused on the crucifix, on the cross. Everything is answered there. Everything. We will all suffer, even if we're suffering inside the church. Okay. But our only way home is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So I meditate on the cross. One of the things that has touched my heart that I shared with Bishop Olmsted, and he said to me, I love that. I love that scripture verse. It's the book of Sirach 736, and he writes, In all you do, remember your last days, and you will never sin. Think about that, John Henry. It doesn't say may not sin, might not sin, shall not sin, because everything's gray now, right? In our church and in our world. You will never sin. If you and I knew we were going to die tonight or tomorrow, trust me, you would walk in on eggshells trying to live in a state of grace. So that's what I encourage people because they look over here and look what this is doing. Look, I said, focus on your salvation of your soul and that of your family. And then one soul at a time. It's got to happen at a grassroots level. One soul at a time. Paul Zaccarelli, thank you so much for being with us. Beth, thank you as well. God bless you, John Henry. Thank you, John Henry. God bless you. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. 
Hi everyone, this is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this video. And to see more like this, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. So check out our links in the description to read more, sign up for our newsletter, and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all of the latest life, family, and culture news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.